Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Brooke Andrade, Director of the Library at the Center and your host for this episode. The destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD provided potent material for early Christians who used the story as an example of heavenly retribution against the Jews for their rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. Versions of the story were ubiquitous across Europe throughout the medieval period, appearing in a wide variety of written texts and works of visual art. And in each time and place, the story was reinterpreted to resonate more fully among local audiences and reinforce important religious precepts. Our guest today is Timothy Stinson, Associate Professor of English and a University Faculty Scholar at North Carolina State University, where his research involves Middle English poetry, codicology, the history of the book, and digital humanities. As a fellow this year, Tim is revisiting these stories of holy vengeance, focusing particularly on the ways this story was told in late medieval England. Welcome, Tim, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Brooke. I'm happy to be here. I want to start by talking about the inspiration for the vengeance texts, as they're called, the destruction of Jerusalem and the Second Temple. Can you give us an overview of the event that inspired the narratives you're studying and explain why they were ubiquitous in Europe and for centuries? Sure. I think a a helpful starting place is to distinguish right off the bat what happened versus in the centuries that followed what everyone said happened, because they're, they're very different things. What actually happened, we're talking here about the Roman Judeo War that culminated in AD 70 with the destruction of the Second Temple, as you mentioned. And that war was about really self-rule of Judea, Judea at the time being a, a Roman province, and about taxation. So there was tribute, there was money owed to the Romans, and some of your listeners may be familiar with echoes of this in biblical accounts, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? There's this question, what should we be paying to Rome? What should we be keeping? There were a lot of tensions at that time about religious observance and practice, all the sorts of things that you get in environments of puppet governments, colonialism. These are these are sorts of things that never really go away. So at the time, of course, the Roman army and Romans in general were not Christians. In fact, at this point, you might think of Christianity more as sort of messianic Judaism. And, of course, soon after this, there was, there was going to be direct Roman persecution of Christians, right? So the Roman conversion to Christianity really doesn't happen until Constantine in the 4th century. However, and this gets to that point of what did they say happened, the account that began to be accepted in late antiquity and then really throughout the medieval period is that the Romans, because Rome is so associated with Christianity, with the Catholic Church being centered there, the papacy, the idea was the Romans were outraged about the crucifixion. And so in AD 70, a couple of the commanders, Titus and Vespasian, this is a father-son duo who both later became emperors themselves, the story went that they converted to Christianity. They were so angry about the crucifixion and the role of the Jews in it that they rolled up into Jerusalem with the Roman legions and leveled the city, thereby bringing about the prediction that Christ made, there will be no stone standing upon a stone. So that seemed to be the accepted events throughout most of the medieval period. This is what actually happened. Of course, it's not what actually happened. So that I think that's useful to distinguish. 
And just very briefly, the main the main account we have of, of that war is from Josephus, who wrote the Jewish War. He was a first person witness. He was actually a Jewish commander who went over to the Roman side and went back to Rome with Titus of Vespasian and even adopted the name Flavius from the Flavian dynasty. And what we get is his account of what actually happened with sort of centuries of accretion of new narratives put on top of that, where things get reinterpreted and added to. How long were these texts or narratives circulated in Europe and where exactly? So you use the word ubiquitous, which is exactly right. There's virtually nowhere in continental Europe or uh, in what we now think of as the UK and Ireland where these narratives weren't popular. This was one of the things that fascinated me early on. I encountered this narrative first from a single 14th century English poem, The Siege of Jerusalem. I was editing it. And pretty soon I began to see echoes of it here and there. You know, I'd be in Germany in an art gallery and well, there's a painting from a church or a tapestry. I would see a Roman coin that commemorated it. And I began to just take note of all these instances. And so one of the fascinating things to me was that, you know, these stories are virtually everywhere. It was the second most performed narrative in medieval drama. There were plays that lasted two to four days, the most popular being The Passion of Christ, which was often paired with the destruction of Jerusalem because they were seen as a cause and effect. The crucifixion is what led to the destruction. There's visual art, manuscript illumination, sermons. It's really everywhere. So, And the popularity began before what we would properly call the medieval period. You know, Josephus himself was enormously influential one of the most popular of, of all what we might think of as secular literature throughout late antiquity and middle ages on into the early modern period. So there's no point in the middle ages, which itself is a thousand year period where it wasn't enormously popular. It started before that. It lasted well after that. So we even have into the 17th century English plays being written and performed. So during the era of Shakespeare, we have English drama. So it's both ubiquitous and long living, but also, paradoxically, one reason it lasted so long, I think, is because it was so changeable. Its ability to take on the cast of the time and place where it was, which we would think of as being short-lived or having a shelf life, is one way that it stayed alive. It stayed alive by reinventing itself. I guess we see that in, in everything from fashion to evolution, though, right? This is, the way, this is the way the world works in some sense. So I was both interested in what is it about the story that is kind of evergreen in its importance, but what is it about it that really made it appealing to folks in late medieval England? Because in, in 1290, there was this event, the Edict of Expulsion, where all the Jews were cast out of England. You know, it was a formal proclamation. Any who were still there and had survived pogroms and various things against them were cast out of the country. So by the time this narrative seems to really be taking off in 14th century England, I was thinking, there's no one alive who personally knows a Jew unless they've been outside. Maybe they've been to Spain or somewhere like that, maybe the Middle East. Why are they so invested? It seems to be gaining steam in the absence of Jews rather than losing steam. And so that, I was fascinated both by the evergreen nature of it and what was local and specific in this moment in time. What was it? Why were they so interested in this? So this is what the book is about, right? This is the book that I'm working on here this year at the Humanity Center is trying to answer this question. I'm arguing that from the very moment that English national identity started to take shape. And this happened, I think, somewhat later than most folks who aren't specialists in the area imagine, right? There early on, 
people tended to think perhaps more locally. I'm from this region of England. I owe allegiance in the so-called feudal system. I owe allegiance to, to this man above me who owes allegiance to the man above him, to the king on up the ladder. And as the idea of England and Englishness took shape, there's actually quite a lot of evidence that, perhaps surprisingly, Jerusalem played a big role in that. And one way that took shape is that to have self-identity as a Christian nation, and a Christian nation that specifically saw itself as a descendant of Rome, which folks in medieval England did. Again, that's not really historically accurate, but their their belief was, you know, there's Aeneas, there's the founding of Rome, there was this guy named Brutus, not the Ette Brutus guy, but rather a, another Brutus who then came over to the British Isles and founded England. And in fact, many famous poems such as Sir Guy and the Green Knight began with this short recap of history. Well, you know, there was Rome, and there was Aeneas, and there was Troy, and then on down the line, there's Brutus, he comes over here, now we have London, now we have England, and they were always identifying themselves with this classical past of Rome. Well, so too, their national identity as Christians seemed to be wrapped up in this notion of, well, there being folks who aren't Christian, right? Sort of to understand light, you need dark, right? To understand pleasure, you need to know what pain is. Well, so it seems that often in self-identity, there needs to be a sort of foil. In late medieval England, that foil tended to be actually Muslims, who were kind of universally called Saracens, but also Jews. So I think self-identity is one part of it. How do we think of ourselves as a nation? Who are we? How do we think of ourselves as Christians? Who are we? There seems to be something about Judaism being in the present tense that really bothered them from a theological, intellectual, and perhaps even a, you know, sort of deep personal way that to understand yourself as a Christian was to understand yourself as an inheritor of Judaism, because you think there's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament, as, as we might term it today, but there's the Judeo-Christian religion. Jesus was a Jew, the apostles were Jews, David and Joshua and Abraham and Moses, these are part of Christian self-identity. But to have people who said they were Jews, who rejected Christ, and who said, well, we don't think that was the Messiah, we're continuing to practice this form of religion that predates Christianity, something about that seemed to cause cognitive dissonance or something, right, with some medieval Christians. Well, you know, don't you know we're supposed to install software 2.0? You can't be running the old OS, right? So this is this seems to be something going on at the same time, too, that, that was happening not just in England but everywhere. Another context, in addition to that, that idea of national identity formation, is the Crusades. The Crusades were failing spectacularly, regularly, after the first Crusades. So by the late medieval era, England had been sending for quite a while folks off to the Crusades, trying to recapture Jerusalem from the Muslims, failing to do so. Of course, defeat does not sit well with most people. This was the case then. So I think these narratives also served as a kind of wish fulfillment because, of course, as was often the case then, the Romans are dressed as medieval knights, using medieval siege tactics, using medieval weapons, hunting and hawking in their off time. They're not behaving like Roman legions fought, right? Uh, in, in Josephus, you actually read the Roman tactics. That's one reason it's fascinating. In these medieval poems that I'm writing about, it's quite the opposite. So it's really a sort of wish fulfillment. Here you have chivalric knights going off to Jerusalem and winning the battle. 
So you see it, it's kind of playing into current events there. Is this where the concept of vengeance comes in? Yes. So the concept of vengeance happens very early on in, in the umbrella term for these sorts of stories, both in England and elsewhere, is vengeance of our Lord narratives. And that notion of vengeance comes from back to that original idea that Titus and Vespasian went there specifically to avenge the death of Christ. Did vengeance take on a different meaning in English narratives? I think that part of it is a little more stable across all the text. I think maybe the thing that changed is how folks in medieval England, what they thought motivated vengeance and how it reflected back on their own needs. You've written that in the English narratives, or I guess, or at least some of the English narratives, they sympathize with the Jewish victims of the destruction of Jerusalem. So why? This has been a point of debate among critics who are looking specifically at the medieval English narratives, because there's no doubt that these narratives are overwhelmingly anti-Judaic and that there's a lot of anger directed at, at Jews. There's a lot of bias against Jews. There's no doubt that this was the default opinion of most folks. And these narratives seem to most people, rightly so, worse than average in that they seem to be celebrating violence specifically against Jews. These stories are extremely disturbing in how graphic they are, the level of the violence in them, everything from casual to intense racializing of the Jews, violence against them, celebration of these things. But some critics have seen in some of these poems a sort of mitigation of this, that they're less celebratory than early critics had seen. There was particularly in mid-20th century the tend to almost just push these poems away and not talk about them. And I, I always wonder if that's because of sort of the events of the Second World War and things like that. Maybe it was just too uncomfortable at the time. They're still very uncomfortable to read, to talk about. I teach these texts, and they're difficult. They're difficult to read. They're difficult to think about, talk about. So there's debate about that. One thing that's fascinating and that bears witness to this malleability that I showed later on, though, is that the story stayed popular in early modern England when it became a Protestant nation. And what happened there is rather fascinating because you start to see a lot of sympathy for the Jews. Why? Because you have Roman Catholics supposedly attacking them. So suddenly, you know, there's Popish Rome over there, and look what they did to these poor Jews. And that turns upside down what folks were doing with the narratives in, in the medieval period. And that just shows that thing that I mentioned earlier, how these stories seem both perennial and endlessly adaptable, that suddenly these anti-Judaic narratives become instead anti-Catholic narratives where the Jews are the victims. You visited a manuscript recently. You visited a manuscript for one of these narratives. Is that correct? I've seen quite a few of them over You've the years. You've seen quite yes. a few. And I, I noticed one in particular at Cleveland Public Library. Ah, you had yes. gone up to visit. Yes. Why do you visit manuscripts? What does it mean to look at a text? And what can you get from being present with a text that you can't, say, from a digitized version of a text? In terms of this project, actually handling the manuscripts themselves as opposed to looking at a digitized copy is less important. A lot of the work I do deals with codecology. You mentioned that word for listeners who are unaware of it means a codex is a manuscript book. This is a handwritten book. So in the era before printing. So we use that to talk about the actual study of the physical things themselves. We're very interested in how they were assembled, how they were put together, and these sorts of things that you can't tell from looking at digital images. And in fact, 
any sort of facsimile has the capacity to really distort that sort of thing. Now, there's a there's a simple reason that I go to, to libraries and look at these books, though, which is that not all of them have been digitized. And particularly in the United States, most medievalists very often are looking at printed editions, and you seldom get, sometimes you get a printed book whose goal is to give you the whole manuscript, but that's not usually what we do. We're reading, say, the Canterbury Tales, or we're reading the Siege of Jerusalem, or Pierce Plowman, or another poem, and what you get is that slice of the manuscript that has what you want to read, and all the rest is is missing. When you look at it that way, you miss the ways that people in the medieval period would have read these poems, particularly poems that aren't themselves book length. They have something in front of them. They have something behind them. So if you think about a poem like Siege of Jerusalem, there are a couple of manuscripts where it occurs with historical text that suggest to us, hey, this is this is sort of Josephan material, right? This is antique learned history, and that seems to be the way they were reading it. Right before it, there occurs an account of the Passion of Christ, which shows that same sort of thing I mentioned with drama. Very often you would have both plays. This shows us that there's a sort of devotional way of reading it. Many of the products look to be the production of monasteries. Some of them aren't, though. Some of them seem to be copied by an individual country gentry, you know, a country gentleman who has an interest in alliterative poetry. He's really interested in maybe the meter, like this. he's collecting a particular type of poetry. When you look at it that way, you begin to see how folks in the Middle Ages read it, or you see suggestions. It's not always a smoking gun, but you see, you see suggestions, hints at what sort of poem they thought it was. There's been a problem of genre with some of these poems in, in modern scholarship. The interesting thing is there seems to be a problem of genre in the medieval period. Some folks think, oh, this belongs in a history manuscript because these were what we call miscellanies. That is, they contain multiple works. Some seem to think it was a devotional work. Some seem to see it as you know, a work where we meditate on uh, the meaning of the crucifixion. So that's one reason we look. And there's also what we call collocation, which is a scribe who's intentionally synthesizing or assembling text in order to have them read. That manuscript you mentioned in Cleveland is fascinating for a number of reasons. First of all, there it sits, the only medieval manuscript, as far as I know, in the Cleveland Public Library of all places. But it's also the only copy of that text in the entire world. So it's absolutely unique. And how did it come to be in Cleveland? And what that is is a Middle English translation of a French source and that manuscript is fascinating because of the way it combines other texts before and after that tell the same story. So you can tell the scribe was putting together a manuscript that combined multiple texts to tell the same story. Well, that, in fact, is the compositional method of many of the poets at the time. If you look at a poem like Siege of Jerusalem, it's, highly, it's both highly original and highly, um, highly reliant upon other sources. You know, there might be several hundred lines at a time where the poet is translating from Latin or French into an English verse form. But the way he synthesizes and what he chooses to leave out and what he chooses to emphasize is the art form. And you see something similar to that the way, in the way certain individual scribes put together books. The way they select texts and put them together, what we call collocation, tells us a lot about how the narrative was received. So that's one reason to look at whole manuscripts, whether you're doing that digitally or in person. So it's not just that the stories in the book are creative works, but the book itself 
and the way it was pulled together is a creative work, a work of art. Sometimes that is certainly the case, and that is certainly the case with that book. Thank you so much, Tim. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.